This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. So, Bree, I remember this one time I was in a bike race around Tucson, and uh, I wasn't paying attention. We were riding down 4th Avenue, and there's railroad tracks, like street track tracks, and my bike's tire like went and wedged in to the railroad tracks, no. and I totally fell down and just like skinned my hands, everything. Ugh. I had nothing with me, nothing at all. And it's that times where you want a first aid product and you have nothing. And <laughs> active skin repair utilizes a molecule called hypochlorous acid. When applied to the skin, the molecule works by mimicking the natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. I've used it on my son's mosquito bites, and I wish I would have had it the time I totally scraped up my hands. Oh, I hear you. Like whenever I go paddleboarding, kayaking, I'm always trying to find something that is like an all-in-one that I can take with me. And active skin repair could be used like that. It can be used to treat cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, and other types of skin damage. It's also safe and non-toxic, which makes it suitable for all skin types, all parts of the body, like eczema and acne-prone skin, all of that. With over 500,000 happy customers, thousands of five-star reviews, and ingredients so safe and clean they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest, you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order. Use code NOGUILT. Welcome to the No Guilt Mom podcast. I am your host, Joanne Crone, and I am joined here by my amazing, trustworthy, <laughs> adventurous co-host, Brie Tucker. Hello, hello, everybody. Oh my God, I couldn't keep it in on that one. <laughs> and I'm, trustworthy. And I'm making Brie. <laughs> and my hands on my hips and I have like a cape flying behind me. I'm trustworthy, Brie. <laughs> Well, I, in front of me, I have our new Sib journal coming out, and our Sib journal has a list of all these positive qualities. So I did pick one just off that list, and trustworthy is the one that came out, which I does like describe you. I love it. Thank you. It's a very interesting introduction. <laughs> it is. And if you know me, you know trust is like one of those number one qualities that it, I'm very big on that. So. Aww. Me too. Me too. I feel like I'm very, I'm a very loyal person. And so right. when people destroy that trust or that loyalty, I'm like, you're dead to me. <laughs> but that's when that mama bear type it's thing when the comes mama out. bear comes Urgh. in. And it's very, very hard to get that back. Like I've had quite a few friend relationships where mm-hmm. I, well, not like friend, friend, me like, me like acquaintance where we're all good, but then they did something that was totally untrustworthy and they got put like in this, like behind this wall. And I'm not saying that's a very healthy way to live. I'm just saying that that is how my own mind works. And I, yeah, I have a hard time when that gets broken, rebuilding that. Yeah. yeah. Rebuilding it is a long process, I think for anybody. And that's how I approach a lot of things in my life. Like any, again, like even public figures. Yeah. If they broke my trust, I have a real hard time dealing with them after that. There's a lot that has to be done after that. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. 
Definitely. Okay. Well, today our guest has our complete trust. He does. He's a very trustworthy individual. We are interviewing Alex Sujong Kim Pong. He is the author of a book called Rest, which is how I found out about him. I read the book Rest. And he is just, (laughs) he's devoted to helping companies and individuals move to a four-day work week or a six-hour workday while still feeling focused and productive. And the reason I first came in contact with him is after I read this book rest, I was writing a blog post for Cricket. And Cricket is like just a fun hobby. It takes what I love about my work, the little bit of design and the little bit of like technical know-how and just combines it in this very low pressure hobby. It's a hobby. Right. So I wrote this post and I quoted him from his book Rest about everything that you need to do to find a hobby, like the four characteristics of a hobby. And he found this post and he tweeted it out on his personal Twitter. And I was like, oh my gosh, the author of Rest (laughs) just like treating me out. And I became really excited. And when we started doing this podcast, he was on our list. He was on our list. And he said, yes, I know, right? Like, we just, like, reached out and, hey, are you interested? And he's like, well, I feel like (laughs) moms don't need another middle-aged man telling them what to do. I'd be honored to be on the podcast. Which right there made him, like, a rock star Right there, we're like, yes, you are the right (laughs) choice to come on our podcast. Because we wanted to talk all about how productivity is not always the biggest concern, nor should it be the biggest concern. Right. And I think that it's important to relate this so... As a mom, I see productivity as that busy, busy, busy thing. Yeah, right. Everything like you have to get so much done. You have to go this, 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 this. Mm -hmm. Right. And when we were talking with him about that, I mean, the point was in all of his research that he had done, it shows that being that busy all the time actually inhibits your creative thinking Mm -hmm. and your problem solving ability, which I find fascinating because I feel guilty when I wasn't busy all the time. But reading his book and seeing all the research, let me take a breath. And knew that it was actually not just okay to rest, but it was the best thing I could be doing for myself. Right. Right. And what I really love too, again, especially with his book, I know he's written four books, but rest was the one that we were definitely focusing on with this one. You can't deny the research. No. You can't deny it. Like, I mean, it goes back beyond. I mean, he talks about... He talks about it all in <laughs> the interview. Dickens, he talks about Darwin. Mm-hmm. I mean, he goes all the way back. I mean, just looking at individuals and their history and what they reported back. And then again, what current science research shows us, which is that being busy, 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 busy all the time is not helping you. Which so, is a message I love. And we hope that you'll enjoy our interview with Alex Sujung Kim Pong. We are brought to you today by... The Sib Journal. Sib stands for Siblings Interacting Boldly. And if you have kids in your house right now who are fighting nonstop and they are yelling and screaming at each other and you know, you know they're not being healthy in their conflict, the Sib Journal system is for you. It is the only system that teaches kids how to name their emotions and then communicate those emotions effectively 
to other people, but we also teach them about things like shame and setting boundaries and acknowledging how they contributed to the problem. This is a game changer for any house that struggles with the nonstop name calling or screaming or just kids yelling at each other. And to celebrate our Civ Journal system release, we have a little contest. Ooh, tell me more. So we so appreciate you as a No Guilt Mom podcast listener. And so this combines it all. Mm -hmm. We would like you to write a review of the No Guilt Mom podcast. You can do it on Apple Podcasts and just give us two to three sentences about what you enjoy about the No Guilt Mom podcast and give us a star rating, five stars for good karma, and then take a screenshot of that and... Take your screenshot to noguiltmom.com slash review where you can submit it. And that's it. You're entered to win a Sib Journal system, which includes two Sib Journals shipped directly to your home valued at $98. That's it. It's an amazing, amazing thing because you know what? You get it before it's even on sale. You get mm-hmm. it before it's on sale. We cannot wait to read your reviews and let's get on with the show. You want mom life to be easier. That's our goal too. Our mission is to raise more self-sufficient and independent kids, and we're going to have fun doing it. We're going to help you delegate and step back. Each episode, we'll tackle strategies for positive discipline, making our kids more responsible and making our lives better in the process. Welcome to the No Guilt Mom Podcast. Hello, Alex, and welcome to the No Guilt Mom podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Joanne. It's a pleasure to be with you. I have to say, you are the first man on our podcast. Wow. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) That's an amazing (laughs) honor. (laughs) And I was talking to you before the podcast started how I had read your book, Rest, a year ago. I just found so many great takeaways and tips to it. And honestly, the way we connected the first time, like I actually interacted with you was when you found a post that I wrote about a cricket wine glass. And I quoted some of rest in that about the benefits of deep play. (laughs) (laughs) And you tweeted it out. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you tweeted out my post. (laughs) I was very, very excited about that. (laughs) Sometimes social media can actually bring people closer together. So I'm glad to hear. Right? It can. And you know what? I love Twitter as a social medium for that respect because like, you can just start talking to people that you normally wouldn't get a chance to talk to in real life. Beyond six degrees of separation. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So mainly I'm a writer and a consultant. So in addition to rest, I have a new book about the four-day work week and how it can save the world. And I also am continuing through a company that I started called Strategy and Rest to follow and push along the global movement to shorten working hours and help companies and people discover how they can you know, get more time back for themselves. So that's basically what I do. First of all, I've been following like this idea about the shortened work week for a while, and I find it so fascinating because I first heard about it with companies like Google, where mm-hmm. they had the 20% time where like workers would work 20% on their own projects and then the rest of the time with the company. And now that really fuels innovation and growth and just makes everything a lot like more creative. So along those lines, a lot of moms 
that I talk to really, they don't have time for rest. And some of them, they don't see the benefits of rest. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found in your research about the benefits of rest? Sure. Well, first of all, we do tend to think of either rest as something that's optional or rest as something that you do once you've finished everything else that is on your plate. And for everybody, I think work, you know, or of moms in particular, you're never done. There's always more that you could take on. But I think that what science tells us is that rest is neither a competitor to work, nor is it some optional thing that, you know, you do when you're dead. We really should think of work and rest as partners, each one supporting and sustaining the other. And from a scientific point of view, rest is essential for improved learning, for maintaining both physical health, obviously, but also mental health. And over the long run, it's essential as a kind of strategic defense against things like chronic illnesses, depression, burnout, even Alzheimer's and other kinds of dementias in addition to the short-term benefits that rest provides. There are all of these amazing long-term, really important things that rest brings us that we, you know, that we sacrifice or we deny to ourselves when we deny ourselves the opportunity to take rest. You have probably heard me talk about my dog, Addie, before. And when we first got her, we didn't know that she was a counter surfer. Now, counter surfing animals are the ones who jump on counters, especially kitchen counters, when you're not looking and take stuff off of them. Well, in this instance, Addie had jumped onto the kitchen counter and eaten an entire bottle of my other dog's pain medication. You can imagine the freak out that ensued from me. So imagine this. You're at the vet's office again, knowing that vet care costs continue to rise. You're anxiously waiting to hear how expensive the bill will be. But if you had pet insurance, your pet could be covered for accidents or illnesses. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care that they may need. They allow you to customize the plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. Because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash no guilt. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash no guilt. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash no guilt. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. 
Hey guys, Brie here, and let me tell you, April is a killer time of the year for me because it is crazy allergy season. I swear, everything that is in bloom looks fantastic and beautiful, but it makes it so I can't breathe. I am literally coughing, sneezing, rubbing my nose. I look like Rudolph half of the spring. It's terrible. But luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies like I do, we live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can finally breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine is the best decongestant available. It relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I absolutely love it. It is the only allergy medicine that works for me. So if you're ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just one quick Trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. I was reading your bio and you went from having a very, very busy and packed career. You said that it was during a sabbatical you took in 2011 where you really discovered the benefits of all of this. What happened during that time that made you kind of switch gears? So, you know, I had been working as a consultant in Silicon Valley for the previous 10 or so years and was you know, for the last several had been you know, constantly feeling like there was always more that I could do right? This is a very demanding sort of place. People are always on. And when you work with clients, you think you need to be always accessible to them. And there's always a little bit more you can do on any project. You're never really finished in the way that you are, like if you're a furniture maker or you're plowing a field or something. And, you know, I was very much in the sort of mode that, you know, not only is overwork and necessity, but there's also a kind of moral quality to it, right? It's a way of showing your commitment and your dedication and your passion. It is. And that's how a lot of moms are too. Like they want to be busy, busy, busy all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that sort of we get all kinds of signals from our society, whether it is in the workplace or in the home, that kind of constant engagement, always doing something, always having another project is the way that either we get ahead in the world or we be good parents and have good kids. When I was in, you know, I had an opportunity to go on this sabbatical at Microsoft Research. And about a month in, I realized I was getting amazing amounts of work done. I was having these great ideas. I was writing terrific stuff. But I didn't feel the sense of kind of constant time pressure or time loss that was just part of everyday life here in the Valley. And it started me thinking that maybe our assumptions that you need that sense of being constantly on sort of in danger of being overwhelmed in order to do really good work, that you need that to push you along. Maybe that actually was backwards. You know, maybe in order to do the kind of work that we really love to do, that it's necessary to step away from that and to find a way of both working and living that is sort of more balanced and slower but ultimately more productive. That experience was what set me on the path of looking at the lives of 
Nobel Prize winners and famous authors and other people of that sort, and getting into the kind of neuroscience and the psychology of creativity and rest, and discovering that actually rest is really important for all kinds of great work, as well as incredibly important for having a good life. But all of that started with that sabbatical and this particular evening where I had that epiphany. I love that idea of being able to create more creative work and be more productive while doing less because it does fly in the face of our society's expectations that you have to be busy, 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 busy and like keep going after that next goal to really get ahead in the world. Something that I loved reading in your book is all the habits of very successful people. And one that sticks in my mind is Winston Churchill and his painting and how he was like, he replenished himself via painting. And that got me thinking about moms and hobbies. Because if you talk to a lot of women today, you'll find that they're very, very busy and they don't have anything to fulfill themselves in that way that you describe in your book, Rest. So what, as moms are looking for ways to fulfill themselves, and as everybody in general is looking for hobbies, what's really important to keep in mind when they're thinking, oh, I have to rest? Like, what do you do during that rest? First off, you know, I think working moms don't need more life advice, particularly from another middle-aged guy. So <laughs> We appreciated that in your email. <laughs> You're like, he's booked. <laughs> To try to speak a little bit more generally to this phenomenon, though, the importance of hobbies, particularly ones that you get really, really wrapped up in, you know, not just things that you're casual about, but things that you're passionate about, are that, first of all, it is your own time. It is something that can be interesting enough to take you away from a busy job and to make you feel good about it. It's also very often something that brings you into either into contact with other people depending upon the thing and the work you normally do, or sometimes is just time for yourself. The other thing, though, about really serious hobbies, and I'm thinking here of the kinds that are pursued by people who are like working in incredibly ambitious and fast-moving fields, or in the case of Winston Churchill, you know, he was running World War II when he was, while, you know, also finding time to paint. So for these people, What they find in hobbies are some of the same kinds of satisfactions and pleasures of work when it when it is at its best without the frustrations. So, you know, Churchill talked about painting as being great for him because it was like politics, which is not the first thing you think of when you think of painting. But he said that, you know, you need in both cases, you need a clear vision of what you want to do, in one case, quite literally. You have a limited amount of time in which to act. You have to be decisive. You have to be thoughtful and strategic. But when he was painting, he didn't have the labor party trying to erase everything that he was doing. And so it was the stuff he liked best about politics without the frustration. It was also something that happened rather quickly. You know, at the end of an afternoon, you had a painting, whereas pushing bills through government can take months. And so it delivered those pleasures in a very sort of in kind of in miniature at a very rapid time scale. I think it serves as a way of reminding people of the satisfactions that they get from work when it goes really well, which I think if you are in a job that is very complicated, that's very challenging, 
that has an open-endedness to it where it may not always be really clear whether what you've done is going to pay off or really was the right move. Having those reminders can be psychologically really valuable for sort of giving you the resilience to keep going, as well as giving you a break from the daily grind. I get really into the neuroscience stuff the more I, I look into this because I personally have a problem with shutting my brain off. I am a go, 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 go. I go for the next goal. It's very hard for me not to work on a weekend because I'm like, I have this idea and I need to go do this right now. When you talk about the brain and we have this portion of our brain called the default mode network that needs that downtime, can you explain a little bit about why we need that downtime to have those creative epiphanies later on down the road? Sure. This is one of the most interesting parts of the project for me as well. The default mode network is a set of connections between different parts of the brain that activate when we are not when our attention is not focused on some particular thing. So in those moments, like when you're unloading the dishwasher or you're doing something that's fairly automatic, you don't have to kind of concentrate. Your thoughts just kind of wander off. In those periods, and indeed in times as short as the time it takes literally to blink your eyes, the default mode network activates. What's interesting about the default mode is not just that it really does seem to be the default state that the brain wants to go to, but also that it connects parts of the brain that research shows are associated with creativity, with visual thinking, with sort of rumination and reflection. And so where it turns out to play an important role in creativity and sort of in developing new ideas is that You know that thing where you're trying to remember the name of an actor who was in the movie and this other thing and you can't remember, it's on the tip of your tongue, but two minutes later, it pops into your mind. That's the default mode network continuing to work on problems even while your attention is shifted elsewhere. One of the things that very creative people do is structure their days to layer periods of really intensive focused work, like a couple hours working very hard with periods of leisure where they can just let their, you know, sort of let the default mode take over and do its thing. When you do that, the things you have just been working on that you haven't solved, continuing to kind of run around in your mind and the default mode takes over. And by doing this, you get both the benefits of the physical break from work, but you also give your creative mind an opportunity to keep working on problems and sometimes to generate those aha moments that help you push your work a little further with no kind of extra conscious effort on your part. And creative people actually will structure their days to make sure that they have plenty of that kind of time because they recognize that it actually is a really, really valuable resource for them. And that sometimes they're able to solve problems in that mode that elude hours and hours of conscious effort. So that's why the default mode network turns out to be a great thing and something worth supporting and making time for. That's like you get so much done just doing nothing, which is all based on brain science. Exactly. It sounds completely counterintuitive at first, but once you dive into it, you know, you discover, first of all, 
nothing actually has an awful lot of stuff in it and an awful lot of stuff going on and giving space for things like mind wandering and rest turn out to have huge payoffs both in the short run and in the long run for your work and your health and your entire life. Yeah. And I know that like I've experienced that too in my work where I would write in the morning and then I would go on a walk or something. And this problem I'd been trying hard to figure out would all of a sudden just pop in my head. That's the default mode network at work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly it. In terms of, you said people, creative people schedule their day around this thing and to have time to do it. I know that Brie mentioned when she read the book about the early hours. Oh my goodness. Okay. So yes, that's a thing with me. All right. So in your book, you talk about how people have their timeframes and rhythms that they follow and their productive times. And between the two of us, Joanne Mm -hmm. is definitely an early riser kind of gal and I am not. I do my best work late in the evening for some reason. That's just when things make sense to me. And maybe I've just been wondering all day long. And that's why (laughs) I've been on that mode all day long. But then in the book, you talk a lot about how so many very successful individuals, entrepreneurs do their work first thing in the morning. And I'm all like, I have a bone to pick about that. (laughs) Some of us just can't get that productive time. You try to throw me out of bed at five in the morning. I just sit there and stare at the wall for an hour. In any of your research, have you found examples of how there's successful people who operate, perform better later at night rather than early in the morning? There are people for whom that's true. Certainly, we do have folks who are, you know, very clearly, there are chronotypes, right? There are early risers, there there are larks and there are night owls. There are a couple others as well. And I think that it is for plenty of us, it is a challenge to work against that chronotype. I will also say, though, that there's some really interesting research that shows that doing creative activity against your chronotype, like if you're a night owl, and I am, I'm one of those people who, you know, in college never started homework before about 11 o'clock. That was my (laughs) husband, too. He does that. I didn't understand it. But, you know, I find, so when I was writing, or writing my uh, book, The Distraction Addiction, that was not something that I could sort of manage with a job and with kids. And so I flipped the day and I started getting up and writing at about 5 a.m. And it took several weeks to kind of get into this rhythm, as is the case with many habits. But I discovered that it actually was an incredibly productive time for me. And there's research that indicates that if you are a night owl, that doing stuff in the early, you score better on creativity tests in the super early morning. Likewise, for early birds, this is true in late at night. What seems to be the case is that the mental inhibitions that sort of suppress really creative thinking are weaker when you're a little bit fatigued, which is something that we already knew. And so that seems to be what explains this phenomenon. So if you have a practice that supports it, and if you can make it work, then it turns out to be something that is surprising and counterintuitive, but can be pretty valuable for you. And especially if you've got like young kids in the house, being able to carve out a time that is genuinely yours, I don't think I need to explain why that is a valuable and important thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and we were just talking about that too. I'm like, because I was reflecting back to that. I remember my children are now in junior high. So I remember when they were younger and the importance of that, of getting up early and getting something accomplished that was just for you mm-hmm. before the craziness of the day came in. Because I mean, yes. there are so many things you talk about in your book. You talk about how 
if your work is yourself, then when you cease to work, you cease to exist. And I think that's a big thing too with moms. Like one of our no guilt mom mindsets is Mm -hmm. that you have to have something outside of being that identity of a mom or as an employee. If you put all of your existence into that and you don't acknowledge and give yourself that rest, that outside hobby, those other things to define yourself, then who are you in the end? Hey all, it is Joanne and Bree here. And we want to tell you about a podcast that you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Uturbe, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And in this latest season of Understood Explains, it covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. We actually just listened to the episode, IEPs, Does My Child Need an IEP? And here is what we loved about it. I loved that it was so digestible. Like it was such a short episode and all of the topics, which could be really confusing to parents, were easily explained. And I loved how they gave great concrete examples because you know how much I love me a good example. They explained what kind of services and supports you could actually see on a child's IEP or individual education plan. And they explained those acronyms that nothing drives me more crazy than when there's acronyms and I don't get it. I don't know what it stands for. They took the time to explain everything in so much detail and to cover concerns that a lot of families have about special ed services. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains, or just click on the link in our show notes. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. The idea that your work should both be central to your identity and exclusively the thing that defines you is an incredibly recent invention. Even a century ago where, you know, when you had plenty of very sentimental, valorizing stuff about sort of the beauty of motherhood. This was all stuff that, t- that, that happened in an environment where you know, everybody knew that every mother was also doing a lot of other stuff. Early 20th century households did not just run themselves. And so I think that the idea that not only should you actively try to maximize the amount of engagement you have with your kids, but that there's something wrong with you if you don't do that. That's a very recent thing, and I think it's a demonstrably toxic one. It is not clear that you get better kids as a result of that. There's more than a little evidence that the opposite is true. Mm -hmm. Like I just read a research study that was mentioned in a book that the amount of time you spend with your kids from zero to 12, it's actually inconsequential. It doesn't really make a difference in what kind of people they turn out to be, what kind of things they accomplish. But it's the teenagers who really saw the benefits of having parents 
around more often to like bounce ideas off of. That was something new. I had just, I, first time I've ever heard about it. Great. So all the work I've done so far is for not. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's only one study. That's one. Uh, <laughs> like, wait, 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 wait. Don't jump off the ship yet. Bree. Don't, yeah. Don't but defining yourself by your work, it's a really hard thing not to do because for a while I was a teacher and I defined myself by being a teacher. And when I took off for a year because my son was born, I had a very hard time stripping myself from that identity. It's still for slayer of identity, I think a lot for moms and for women in general is what our career is first. Yeah. And then family is second. And then there's and a far, far distance is whatever defined us before. Again, like in your book about rest, you talk about how the importance of individuals that had like athletic hobbies or things that they did when they were younger and then being able to continue through them or see them adjust and change, but still keeping that interest there. Mm-hmm. And I think you talked about that too, just that it's important to try to keep those things that you did when you were younger and that you found interesting and to continue working on those through the years. Mm-hmm. That still is a passion. So if someone is looking for a hobby, where do you recommend they start exploring? I would look to the things that you really liked to do when you were younger first. I am constantly amazed at realizing that the things that I am really passionate about and that for me are restful and engaging are things that I did when I was like eight or 10 years old. So for example, I have, I do a pretty fair amount of photography and this was actually something I picked up from my dad who had a camera. I mean, when I was a kid had a rangefinder rather like this. Yes, my dad has that. (laughs) In the era of digital photography and having kids of my own, I started getting back into it and realized that there was this kind of really deep memory that sort of that it activated. And so, likewise, I've been fortunate, at least until the last few months, uh, to have a job that involved an awful lot of travel. And you know, again, my family spent a pretty fair amount of time living abroad when I was young. For me, travel has this kind of resonance back to my youth. And I think that there are, in many cases, people will take up hobbies or things that either are things that they did when they were younger, or that kind of reconnect them to family history or their past in some kind of way. You know, that's useful because it deepens the kind of psychological value of a hobby. It also means that there can be things that are, it also makes it hard to recommend specific things for any particular person, right? Because, you know, there is this incredibly autobiographical dimension to leisure pursuits that we're really passionate about. You mentioned exercise though, and that's, I think that that is a super important one, you know, and especially, you know, we often think of intellectual activity and athletic stuff as being somewhat at odds, right? Going back to high school and sort of the distinction between jocks and nerds. But actually, a lot of really intellectually accomplished people are serious athletes. The number of Nobel Prize winners who are like ultra marathoners or sailors turns out to be amazingly high. And it's also the case that, that there's an amazing correlation between continued sort of athletic pursuits and career accomplishment and happiness, particularly among women. There was a study a couple of years ago of women executives and found that more than 90% of them 
had played sports in high school or in college, and something like 70% of them continued to be athletically active and or also you know, coached or mentored young athletes. This is an effect that is that we see for everybody, but for reasons that we don't quite understand, it is especially strong for women. I can identify with that because I run and I didn't start running until I was an adult. But when I did start running, I went all the way. I did marathons. <laughs> I was like, I won't do anything half. When I was engaged in that training, it took all of my stress off work because I was totally focused on accomplishing my running goal. And I thought that that was a great kind of diversion to take away like my stress and my anxiety because I had this great thing to focus on that was not entirely in my control, but it was definitely more in my control than other aspects of my life. And I think athletics also like it just strengthens the grit in people and the willingness to push through very, very hard stuff because they know they can do it. They're like, because sometimes workouts are horrible. Like, I mean, you feel like you're going to throw up and then you get through it and you're like, well, if I did that and I've seen improvement, I can do this other thing. And I think it's a great benefit of it. You hit on all the really significant benefits of sports and exercise. And one is simple physical resilience. This is also important because knowledge work is actually pretty physically intensive. Our brains are incredibly hungry machines. And the better we are able to supply them with food and oxygen, you know, basically having better cardiovascular systems, literally the better we are able to think. But it's also the case that sustained exercise kind of rewires our relationship with stress. And not only does it kind of raise our threshold or our tolerance levels, but it also re-engineers the way that our bodies react to it. Sort of signals of stress shift from being things that we fear to being things that are kind of prelude to accomplishment. And just as great singers will talk about having you know butterflies before a performance but recognizing that that is not something that's going to limit them but rather it's a thing that helps them kind of focus in and sort of prepare for that moment when you go on stage so too does that sort of does exercise train us in a set of kind of psychological triggers that turn out to be really really valuable to us in challenging situations and sort of, and actually throughout our entire lives. Mm-hmm. It's all of these benefits of exercise that go beyond the media interpretation of like, oh, you should exercise to be like physically healthy when really all of these mental benefits are going on too that help propel you in work and everything. I mean, hearing that before I became a regular athlete, I'd be like, no, I'm not exercising ever. But now knowing like, what's going on kind of behind the scenes. You're like, oh, it does need all of these benefits other than just building muscle. Exactly. So keep at, you know, for as long as you can keep at it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it has been so enjoyable talking to you and picking your brain. This is totally my dream to get to pick the brain of authors whose books I love and I read. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell people where they can find you to learn more? So my company is strategy and rest and the url for that very conveniently is strategy.rest rest became a top level domain a few years ago much to my delight and then on twitter and instagram and other things i am ask pang so a s k p a n g 
that's where people can learn more and follow the current research on rest and four-day weeks and find out about new research in those areas. Well, thank you so much, so much for coming on. Thank you. It has been a wonderful, wonderful pleasure. I really loved your book. Thanks to both of you. It was a real pleasure to be with you. We'll talk to you soon. All right. After reading Alex's book, I realized how much I needed a hobby. Really? Yeah, because everything I did was work-based. I mean, this blog started as a hobby. When I first started blogging, it was something that I looked forward to, just sitting down to write my thoughts and then seeing who I could talk with about these thoughts. But then when it became work, I never replaced it as a hobby. Oh. So my entire life is just like, okay, what are we going to do next? And it's all fun. And I greatly, greatly enjoy my work. But also, my mind needs some wind down time. And it needs some time just to have fun and to play and to not feel the pressure of performing. Right. No, and I really appreciated him bringing up this point, because I'm real big on the whole mom identity and finding who you are Mm -hmm. outside of your role as a mom, or a spouse, partner or whatever you may do for like a professional career as well. He talked about why it's so important to have a hobby that you get lost in because those activities where you are just lost in the pleasure of that hobby and that activity actually helps you with your creative problem solving Mm -hmm. and your critical thinking skills. So right there is the research that nobody can argue with you that mom needs her own thing. Mom (laughs) needs her own thing and time for her own thing too. Right. I mean, it benefits not just your mind, your problem solving, your critical thinking, but there's a whole host of other benefits as well, such as like your kids see that you have more going on than just being a mom. Right. It lays that path for your children to realize that, oh, it's important to do things for myself as well. Mm -hmm. It's all about having that balanced life that so many of us see off in the distance. Yes. And we think that that's not for us. We're not in that scenario, but you are. Okay. So here's another slightly controversial spin on it. In Eve Rodsky's book, Fair Play, Mm -hmm. she mentions this idea of unicorn time, which is what we're talking about, having your own hobby. But she also brings up the point of it makes you a more interesting person. So like moms who get consumed with the kids stuff, they have nothing to talk about other than what their kids did or like how their kids frustrated them. And doesn't add to like a depth of a person or an individual. You're right. Because again, it comes back to that whole, if your identity is wrapped up in other people, mm-hmm. what happens when those other people grow and change as you should in life? Yeah, you're right. It is an identity thing. Yeah. It's an identity thing. Definitely. Yeah. So like no guilt going to your moms if you don't have a hobby, but just listening to Alex and hearing all of the benefits of doing something for yourself. I hope that this encourages you to go and find something you love to do and take his advice. Go back to your your childhood and think about what you enjoyed in your childhood. Start there for your hobby. I took this advice like I am considering, and I haven't told anyone this, I'm considering taking some improv classes. (gasps) Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Because I love theater as a kid and I have not been able to be involved in theater. And like with the COVID stuff now, I don't know if it's possible, but I really want to get on stage again and perform. And I think it'd be fun. 
That would be amazing. My I, kids get to do it. I'm like, <laughs> I know, right? Why can't you? Exactly. For sure, right? And improv <sighs> has always been something that has scared the living daylights out of me. But I think even in the context of this and the podcast, I have to be kind of adept at improving anyways, just like you do. You should take it with me. Ooh, that would be <laughs> fun. I think I know where you would go. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've taken a few things there for professional development type fun. No, team building. That's what I'm going for. Team building. And it was fun. We should go do improv. We should. Anyone who wants to go improv with us, let us know. Yep. (laughs) Next time you're in the Phoenix area, give us a shout. We can do our mom time, hobby time together. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So remember the best mom is a happy mom. Take care of you. We'll talk to you later. Thanks so much for stopping by. Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.